You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. I seek refuge uh, with Allah from Satan the accursed. In the name of Allah, the gracious and merciful, uh, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to the Weekend World Show. Uh, the time is uh, five minutes past ten. It's the uh, Sunday of uh, 30th of July 2023. And we're broadcasting from uh, a new venue uh, this morning uh, from the site of the Joseph Sanana, the annual convention of the UK. Uh, at Hadikutul Mahdi. Hadikutul Mahdi literally means the garden of the Mahdi, the guided one, uh, and it's located in Hampshire. And it is from this side that we are broadcasting this program from. Uh, the uh, Weekend World Show is a uh, uh, current affairs show with the week's news, views, and reviews from a faith and non faith perspective promoting the message of peace and unity, discussing religion, politics, and topics of faith and enlightenment, a message of Islam for the West. Uh, join us and share your views or stories by phoning in 0208-687-7878 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. And as mentioned before, as I indicated before, certainly in earlier programs, uh, the views on the Weekend World Show are those of the individuals and guests. I am Walid Ahmed, standing in as host for Arsene Ahmadi, and joining me is one of our regular contributors and uh, uh, conservative party aspirant, very knowledgeable uh, academic as well, Philip Gent. Asalaamu Alaikum, good morning, and welcome to the show, Philip. Walaikum Asalaam. Right. Um, um, I know that you have sympathies with the Conservative Party, and I think they are going through a very bad uh, time now. But uh, I think that uh, things can't get any worse, can they? Uh, things are looking up, or must be looking up. Things things are looking up. Inflation is, is coming down. And, uh, yes. And uh, hopefully that it'll come down further mm. during the course of the, of the year. Yes, and, uh, and we'll be talking a bit more about that if we have time. Um, a thought for our listeners, uh, American author Alice Waters has said, this is the power of gathering. It inspires us delightfully to be more hopeful, more joyful, more thoughtful in a world in a world more alive. Uh, your thoughts, Philip? Yes. Um, coming together um, is is indeed a joyful occasion at Jalsa and generally as families come together there is something about the human spirit that um, is is enhanced by um, meeting with your uh, family with your friends and uh, colleagues uh, there is something innate within us mm -hmm. where we are social beings and and coming together um, with a common purpose uh, in this gathering, we have the purpose of um, strengthening our faith with our Creator and also strengthening fraternal ties with our brothers and sisters. Mm. And, and that c common um, objective of this gathering that we all have unites us and uh, adds further joy mm. to our hearts. No, certainly, certainly. And um, there is always some merit in gatherings. and. Uh, um, they're enhanced uh, certainly uh, with the kind of objectives that um, this kind of gathering that we are uh, actually organizing 
uh, are trying to fulfill. Um, we will be discussing more about uh, this particular gathering, the Dilsa Salana, later on in the course of the program. But uh, just tell us a bit more as to what we have in store. Yes, today on the show, um, we will begin with some of the news headlines uh, on the news review segment of the show, which will be followed uh, uh, by reviewing the current provocation of Muslims taking place uh, where copies of the Quran have been burnt, uh, and examining some of the reaction and explaining um, what our reaction should be in such circumstances. Mm-hmm. And then we'll have a break of sorts? That's right. We'll be moving to the main event of the Jalsa taking place and listening to what I'm sure will be a most enlightening speech by Molana Azar Hanif, the missionary in charge of the United States. Uh, the topic he will be talking on will be the challenges faced by children and their solutions. I think very pertinent, very relevant to, mm. to today. And then after that, we will return to examine the question of God, man's search for the divine, and we'll be joined by psychiatrist Dr. Shaquille Ahmed mm-hmm. and Imam Asif Manur all the way from New Zealand to go right. over this subject, just to emphasize the international aspect of this, this mm-hmm. gathering. Okay. Right, so uh, clearly uh, lots uh, uh, lots to do and uh, lots to cover. Uh, let's get on with the show, and if uh, uh, our listeners want to share their views or uh, their thoughts on anything that we may be discussing, um, we'll be uh, uh, willing. Uh, it'll be uh, great to uh, receive their uh, comments and their views. Please feel free to do so by phoning 0208-687-7878 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. The views on the Weekend World Show are those of the individuals and guests as mentioned before. So right, moving on to the first uh, big uh, section of the show, which is the news review. Um, we are at the venue of the 57th Jasasana, the first full fully-fledged event that is taking place since the COVID restrictions. Uh, we have gatherings of all kind. We had uh, Glastonbury a few uh, weeks ago. There's also this uh, festival called Woodstock that also takes place, I think it's in, in the States. But this gathering is special, isn't it, uh, Philip? What makes it special? It's so it's so special. Uh, it, it, as, I, as I mentioned before, it's, I think, the first of all, um, the prayers of the promised Messiah. Uh, he has prayed for all people, whether they are of um, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community or guests of the community. He's prayed um, uh, for them um, um, when they attend the, the, this Jalsa. So I think the prayers primarily of the promised Messiah are what elevate this gathering above all other and the promised Messiah did mention in his writings that this is no ordinary uh, worldly gathering and it cannot compare and and the words of the promised Messiah are very pertinent through my personal experience over many years attending Jalsa in in a number of countries that it you walk into the Jalsa Gar and you have a tingle running up your spine uh, every time and it is incredibly special incredibly Mm. special and uh, numerous guests have attended the Jalsa. Uh, we invite guests, our neighbours, and all all of them, without without uh, exception, do um, feel the specialness of this occasion. So those those prayers, I think, primarily, and if we, mm. we emphasise those, and then the unity of purpose, which we touched on earlier, I think, mm. 
all contribute to um, that special feeling. Eating together, uh, the equality uh, in the sense uh, that we all eat um, the same food, we, we pray in the same place, um, and there is no, no hierarchy, hierarchy in that sense. We are mm. all equal uh, in front of Allah. Mm. Mm. Do, do you find, I mean, you've, you've attended Jalsa, do you find that there is a sense of spiritual upliftment when, you, uh, when you've attended and you've gone back home, that there is a change, a, a positive vibe? There is, there is absolutely uh, that positive vibe, and it reminds me of a certain extent of Ramzan, where you're all, all at the end of Jalsa, you're looking forward to the next year's Jalsa. Mm. You're already because you're missing the special feeling, the special spiritual feeling and the special brotherhood and sisterhood that you get from this gathering. Um, you're always looking forward to it and you try and keep alive that spirit through the year, just mm. as you do after going through fasting and Ramzan. Mm. It, it, it has a very special feeling and um, it, it certainly does tie, uh, strengthen ties and strengthen bonds uh, within the community and and with with our neighbours, um, of course we we have um, huge huge responsibilities to mm. to our to our neighbours yeah. in, in Islam. Uh, one of the one of the features of uh, the the Jalsa is that um, there is this uh, an um, international bat. Uh, can you say something about that? What it is? Yes. So the 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 bat is. Um, was first instituted by the promised Messiah uh, in 1889 when he took took Beth, uh, having announced his 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 prophethood, his his, his claim, uh, yeah. his claim as, yeah. as the long-awaited Messiah. And this institution of the the Beth, um, is is an annual is an annual event at the Jalsa where we all um, affirm our uh, adherence to 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 our creed. Um, and we acknowledge that we will um, put our faith above all worldly objectives that and we will be prepared to pay the ultimate price uh, in, in relation to upholding our faith mm. and, and our pure pure objectives uh, to mm. God's creation and to, to God himself and also to our beloved uh, leader, mm. uh, so this is something that is enacted in the in the marquee in 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 the site in the Jalsa site, and it's it's supposed to be very very um, emotional and very much spiritually uplifting. I know that uh, when I've taken guests who are not members, they feel there's a sense of spirituality that uh, has been evoked. Indeed, yes. in, indeed, the, the, a sense of expectation, and and the sense of theatre and the sense of occasion is is inevitably there with so mm. many mm. people present and and, and the preparation, um, but it is awe inspiring um, yeah. that when we when we do 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 our best. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate uh, these days that uh, uh, the Muslim world is uh, very intolerant uh, within itself uh, and. Uh, the Ambi Muslim community is uh, continually facing uh, uh, spates of persecution. Uh, there has been this incident uh, not too long ago uh, that uh, the work board of uh, Andhra 
Pradesh issued a fatwa which said, and I, I quote, in consequent to the fatwa of Jamaatul Ulema, under a Pradesh uh, uh, dated 26th of June 2009, so something that has uh, come over uh, a few years ago, the Qadiani community, so he's talking about the Ahmadi Muslim community, is proclaimed as a kafir uh, and not a Muslim. Accordingly, it has been acclaimed all over the uh, globe in consonance with the fatwa issued by many authorities worldwide, organizations and Islamic universities. So these self-appointed custodians of religion have uh, moved them, moved to uh, issue this proclamation. It's against the law of India and this is how CNN News 18 covered it. And uh, after we hear what they said, then perhaps um, you can comment on it and um, our new guest, Zaramdi, perhaps if he wishes to, can also mention something about it. But anyway, let's go. Hello and welcome to CNN News 18. With me, Ayushman Singh Jama. The Ministry of Minority Affairs has intervened in a case of persecution against the MDR Muslim community in which the Andhra Pradesh Waqf Board passed a resolution in February calling the community kafirs and not Muslims. In a strongly worded letter to the Andhra Pradesh government, the Minority Affairs Ministry called the Waqf Board's resolution a hate campaign which could have ramifications across the country. The Central Government's Ministry of Minorities wrote a letter to the Chief Secretary of the Government of Andhra Pradesh, clearly stating that the state's Waqf Board does not have the right to issue fatwas to exclude any community from Islam. The letter added, this constitutes a hate campaign against the MDR community at large and the Waqf Board neither has the jurisdiction nor authority to, to determine religious identity of any community. Well, that's the clip. That's what the um, uh, CNN were reporting. Uh, do you think, uh, Philip, uh, the Ministry of Minorities is right in, its, in the stance it's taken? The Ministry uh, of Minorities in India is, is, is absolutely right to uphold the domestic law uh, that uh, of freedom of faith and freedom of belief and freedom of religion. Um, what uh, the fatwa uh, represents is uh, the local um, ulama playing God because mm -hmm. the Quran is very clear that there is no no compulsion in 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 faith and um, the prescribing of a, of a Muslim, the definition uh, of a Muslim um, is, is, is it, 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 I would go back to the Hadith. We go mm -hmm. back to the Hadith where the Prophet Muhammad on whom we peace uh, referred to the heart as a place where uh, a Muslim's um, submission to the will of God, it's in the heart of, a, of, a, of every human and nobody can can fathom that nobody mm. can see that nobody can interpret that um, so um, the separation I think here of state and religion is is a key point here as well where um, unless we have that separation of, of, of state and, and religion um, peace in, in a country is, would be very very mm. difficult to find very difficult to find but but, but declaring uh, another Muslim a kafir is, is is quite serious what did the Holy Prophet peace be upon him say that uh, do you recollect anything I, I I do recall that on 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 for example a battlefield there was an occasion when um, one of the the fighters um, killed killed uh, one of the uh, the, the opposite the, the, the opponents 
and he he before dying he claimed that he he was a believer uh, he accepted Islam and he yes, accepted the Prophet yes. Muhammad as as, mm. as a true prophet um, but nonetheless he he still killed th this this person and and uh, when when this was um, relayed to the Prophet Muhammad on whom be peace he was beside himself in, in, in grief saying how could you know this person and whether he was actually genuine in his, his belief or not only mm. God knows that and you've You've acted as judge, jury, and executioner in your act, mm. and it was completely wrong. And mm. um, so, certainly, it's not up to ourselves as uh, to mm. be judge, jury, and executioner in these matters. Mm -hmm. it, it really is a relationship of the individual with 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 the God Almighty. Yes. So this was the case with Osama bin Zayd, I understand, uh, who overpowered uh, an enemy, and when the enemy was. Uh, uh, certain that he would be killed, he uh, declared the affirmation, the kalama, la ilaha illa Muhammad Rasulullah. And Osama still uh, went ahead and uh, uh, killed the uh, the enemy. And when uh, this was reported to the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, I think he reported it to the, uh, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. You're quite right, he was very angry. And he said that, uh, you know, did you look into his heart to know that he was. Uh, uh, saying the kalama just because he thought he was going to die and to escape death. Did you know that he was not sincere, in other words? And he said that, uh, what will you say on the Day of Judgment when this kalama will stand uh, against you? You know, who will, who will be your surety on that day? And Osama then uh, is also reports that he wished that uh, he had only become a Muslim after this event because becoming a Muslim after this event would mean that uh, his earlier um, wrongs would uh, would have been cleansed. So he was very remorseful at what, uh, what had happened. So this uh, example that you have uh, introduced is, is very relevant here. And also I remember there is a hadith uh, saying of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, that if you call somebody else a kafir and he's not a kafir, then that acquisition rebounds on you. Is that right, Mr. Zaramadeep? Yes, absolutely correct. Oh, is exactly you. what the Prophet Muhammad mm. said. Mm. And when the Promised Messiah was asked many times that uh, what is your position regarding those who do not believe in you, and he was very clear, he said, all everyone is a Muslim, uh, whether he believes in me or not. But anyone who calls me a kafir, then the statement of the uh, Prophet Muhammad mm. Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam comes into play mm. and he is to be considered uh, the K-word, mm. if I may put it like that. Uh, Muslims, uh, unfortunately, are very trigger-happy in declaring each other kafir. I mean, I know the Abandis have declared uh, the Brailwis or uh, the kafir and vice versa. This is absolutely why, true, why, why and this is documented, why? and this is part of uh, Pakistan history. The Mali report in 1953, this mm -hmm. is exactly what they said. We mm -hmm. said, we have, uh, uh, you know, the Justice Munir and Kayani report yes. in 1953 after the uh, 1953 riots. Uh, by the way, there's a new book out about the 1953 riots. It's okay. available in the bookstore. Have we written it? No, 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 it's <laughs> written by the Jamaat. <laughs> okay. And uh, so... 
this is exactly what they're finding is. So this is the official position of the Pakistan government that we have interviewed every s uh, major sect uh -huh. in Pakistan and each of them consider everyone else to be outside the pale of Islam except themselves. Uh -huh. So this right. is the official Deobandi, Brailbis, Ahle Hadith, Ahle Quran. So I'm afraid everyone is out according to everyone else. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is a very, very, you know, this is a, a very serious subject which you are, which you are discussing. So and this has torn the, uh, the Muslim world apart, really. And uh, you can see what the state of Pakistan mm -hmm. is at the moment. And what's the, what's the solution? The solution is, is uh, uh, I beg your pardon? Is that too difficult a question to answer? I mean well, the solution is uh, the promised Messiah is, has come for exactly this purpose. There is no other purpose than first to bring unity to Muslims, but before that for, for, to, for him to establish a relationship between man and God. So this is a personal quest for everyone. So this is where only the message of the promised Messiah will do. Uh, some people say, oh, why do we need the promised Messiah when we have the Prophet Muhammad mm. and we have uh, the Quran. But the Holy Quran, when, when, the, when the Holy Prophet Muhammad asked, was asked this question, okay, why do we need uh, you know, more ulama after, uh, why do you say there will be dissension amongst the Muslims and they will be brought together by the Imam Mahdi and the Messiah? And he said, well, do not the Christians and the Jews have the Bible and the Torah? What good have those books brought to them? Mm -hmm. I mean, in the present state. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Philip, yeah, uh, your, your, your answer to this yeah. question about the solution. Yes, I, I think there are a couple of things that I'd like to highlight. First of all, the example of the Prophet Muhammad on whom be peace, uh, when in Medina, he was the, the leader, uh, the political leader of the local community, and he gave rights to people of all faiths and none. Uh, and he he separated state and and religion. I think that's that's very important. Mm -hmm. The uh, and crucial um, to to a country to, to to separate state from religion. Secondly, referring to a verse in the Holy Quran where God states that. Um, defensive war has been uh, legitimized because if it had not been legitimized then temples and the chronology here is, is fantastic then temples churches synagogues and mosques would have been destroyed so Allah subhanahu wa starts with uh, temples where there is potentially multiple gods mm -hmm. right down to monoth monotheistic faiths and says look, look God is worshipped in all of these places and all of these places need to be protected. So we all we just need to look at the example of the Prophet Muhammad, on whom be peace, and we need to read the Quran. Mm, very good. Well, thanks very much. Wow, that's amazing. No, that's amazing. I never uh, mm. looked at the verse <laughs> like that. Thank you very much, Peter, for that. Anyway, uh, we have to move on. Uh, recent economic forecast suggests that the UK economy will likely escape a recession. Uh, that's thanks to a better outlook for energy prices, a more resilient global environment, and continued tightness in the labor market. We expect growth to remain weak, though, 
with real GDP at just 0.3% in 2023, rising to 1.1% in 2024. Do you think this will uh, uh, turn into a positive turnaround for the government to increase its chances of de-election next year? Yes. Yes, I do. Yes. I, 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 I do believe so. I think, I think the economy will be a um, very important uh, factor in relation to the outcome of the next next general election. If if the general population do not feel um, that their wages, that their their money is going um, any further and it's actually reducing and cannot go further, then they will look to change the government. They will inevitably look to change the government. Um, a reduction in inflation... Um, it's not too little too late. I don't think it is, actually. Mm -hmm. I, d I don't think it is because there is a credibility issue here. If if Rishi Sunak delivers on halving inflation, which is his stated objective, and he delivers that, that adds credibility to to him, and then you know there is a degree of assurance that if he sets further objectives in in the interest of uh, of the country and in, in the interest of uh, the people, that he will work towards achieving them, and um, it, it gives him greater credibility. I believe so. Yeah. Okay. Let's see what happens. Uh, the election is not too far away. I think uh, fifteen. 16 months at the most, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so you're quite optimistic anyway. I, I, remain, I remain optimistic <laughs> about the chances of, um, of, of the Conservative Party because Come back. It's, it's a long time, 18, 16, 18 months. And, and the alternative, alternative policies uh, need to be put forward as well. Mm. And they mm. need to be credible and, and, and costed. Um, so we await those from, yes, from, so I think from the other parties. Yes, I think that's quite right. I don't think the Labour Party have been coming up with uh, credible sufficiently policies. credible mm -hmm. policies. Mm -hmm. they're, they're making some waves and, you know, the by-election was a great uh, uh, something in their favour. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, let us see. I'm yes. not. Uh, I'm not as hopeful as uh, Philip. I hope he doesn't yes, mind right. my. Uh, yeah. Yes. But admiration from his uh, views. Yeah, we admire his positivity, don't we? Yes. yes, yes absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, we have to move on, um, and uh, well, uh, this particular uh, part of the program deals with an issue that uh, is become current again. Let's listen to uh, the Holy Quran first. وقد نزل عليكم في الكتاب أن إذا سمعتم آيات الله يكفر بها ويستهزأ بها فلا تقعدوا معهم فلا تقعدوا معهم حتى يخوضوا في حديث غيره إنكم إذا مثلهم the translation of this uh, is that he has already revealed to you in the book that when you hear the signs of Allah being denied and mocked at, sit not with them until they engage in a talk other than that. Or in that case, you would be like them. So this is from chapter 4, verse 141. Sadly, we're living in times when there is regular uh, provocation of Muslim sentiment with one act or another. If it is not in the form of books like the satanic verses, they have been cartoons, and now 
the burning of the Holy Quran in public is taking hold. Uh, the Times uh, earlier this week, or dated 21st of uh, July 2023, said the following, two anti-Islam protesters set fire to a Quran in front of the Iraqi embassy in Copenhagen yesterday, uh, creating further tensions between Denmark, Sweden, and the Muslim world. Protests took place in Iran and Iraq following the acts which were permitted under rules protecting free speech. A crowd stormed the Swedish embassy in Baghdad on Thursday and started a fire. The provocations have inflamed relations between Sweden and much of the Islamic world, drawn a rebuke from the Pope and briefly threatened to derail the country's accession into NATO amid a backlash in Turkey. So that was what the Times reported. Um, uh, we have uh, um, Mr. Zarambi on uh, with us, and uh, Sheikh Rahman should be on the line. But uh, if we cannot get hold of him, I'm sure Philip will be able to fill uh, any gap. Uh, let's look at the act itself, uh, Mr. Zarambi. It's, it's, it's a provocation, all right, but those who support it say that this is the exercise of freedom of expression. Why should Muslims object to this? No, this is uh, entirely objectionable. In fact, <laughs> I think <laughs> what the Muslims are saying mm -hmm. is absolutely correct because this is, is this how you promote peace? I mean, these countries, for example, the Western countries have been telling us that they are very peaceful countries. They have the United Nations Charter and they want to follow the rule of law. But how are they behaving to minorities? Why are they disturbing the peace? I mean, you see, this uh, question of uh, freedom of speech has to be tackled. Is this freedom of speech? I don't think it is. I think it is freedom to insult. Mm. And this is not uh, given by any civilized societies. You know, the, the, the question is, do we follow civilized societies or uncivilized societies? In an uncivilized society, you can say what you like, do what you like, and persecute anyone you like, I suppose. But you know, I make it's a very simple point which I pick up from uh, uh, the Caliph of the time, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed. Mm -hmm. He said, "If I insult your father, what is your reaction going to be? If I insult, let's say you invite me to dinner, and there's something about a f you know, I'm just you know, expanding the analogy slightly. It, there's something I do not agree with your father. Maybe he's a Christian, or maybe an atheist, or something." And instead of debating the point on a rational basis, I insult him. See, so religion or any, you know, you cannot ins insult those who are revered by people. That will, that is not a peaceful move. It is bound to disrupt societies and cause havoc. And, you know, we have so many laws in England, for example, against freedom of speech, for example. The latest ones are hate speech, right? You cannot, if you stand up in Brixton or any, and say anything which is provocative against the, uh, you know, Afro-American community or the West Indian community or West African community, there are laws because this is hate speech, and you cannot say anything against any religion on that basis, you know, which is provocative. Uh, 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 
Uh, at what point does it become provocative? If I disagree with you on a religious... Yes, uh, this is a very good point, Lisa. Yes. This is the point of the Ahmadiyya mm. viewpoint. If you want to disagree with Islam, fine. Like Rahafiddin, yes? There is no compulsion mm. in religion. But it has to be... Uh, like I said, you cannot come to my house and insult me or my wife or my sister, or, you know, for wearing the hijab, for example. You cannot insult. You can disagree. You know, like a lady told me in Gravesend that, mm -hmm. oh, I don't like the way when Muslim women dress. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, how did Mother Mary dress? How, yeah. how, how does Mother Mary dress? Mm -hmm. Or how do the nuns dress? Why pick, yeah, yeah. why pick on mm -hmm. Muslim women? Mm -hmm. So you can disagree, but she was being polite. Mm -hmm. You see, that's fine. Mm -hmm. But if she insults that they are chattels or they are mm -hmm. this and that is not... Uh, and especially if my wife was there with me, that would not have, not have gone down very well. But, you know, we are Ahmadi Muslims mm. and we, you know, keep our emotions calm and mm -hmm. this and that. So mm. unfortunately, you know, this issue is a very simple one of insulting. But unfortunately, it has been exacerbated by the reaction of the Muslim world. Okay, we'll come to that. Yeah, okay. Philip, do you, do you see anything on this? Uh, do you think, I mean, <coughs> why, why should we... Why we should be upset with this uh, this example of freedom of speech, so-called in Western capitals? Yes, I, I, I agree with the majority of what, almost unequivocally, mm. what uh, has already been said. Um, so, so clearly, we we are looking at this as practicing Muslims who 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 hold our faith dear, along with many people in in, in Europe. But mm. it has to be acknowledged, certainly from the last census, that um, this country uh, is reducing in its affinity with, with its creator. Mm. And uh, that as a backdrop generally across Europe, I think, is, is responsible for this um, laissez-faire reaction to the burning of a religious text. Um, and the lack of comprehension as to the impact um, on on Muslims generally uh, and the insensitivity um, um, of of this act um, bears witness in in a, in a way to to that backdrop. Mm. However, however, we must protect um, the right to express the right of freedom. And there's a, a very difficult line, I think, to draw between between that and the incitement to hate, the incitement of hatred. Um, yes, we must be sensitive to the feelings of others, but at what, you know, at, at what, what point? point? At, yes, there, what that, point? that's the difficult question. Mm -hmm. That is indeed the difficult question. Um, and each society will have a different view on it. Mm. There's no doubt. What's the Qur'an's, uh, what, what, does the, what does Islam, Islam also promotes freedom of speech, but there's a difference. So what, what differences are there to what's practiced? Yes, well one point we have to realize is that, uh, you know, I point, I make this in my tablighi efforts, is that Muslims do not insult other prophets because we believe in the truth of all prophets and in the, pr in the truth of all the revered books. 
So one thing is clear, <laughs> Muslims have a high moral approach to this because of the teachings of the Holy Quran. Now, as far as uh, freedom of speech is concerned, it is very clear to me, I mean, uh, Philip has said it's a very difficult question and each society will have to decide. But we have to, re and what Philip has said is correct. One of the points, one of the factors is that religion is on the slide, backwards. And people do not have that much affinity to either God or established religion uh, in Western society. And now, in other societies, certainly in Hindu society, in Buddhist society, in Muslim society, people have a great affinity, a great attachment to their religions, to their books, to their prophets. So this must be respected. You know, those in the West um, who are becoming, and Philip has given up the evidence in the last census, I think only 21% of people considered, them to, uh, considered themselves to be Christian. And I was speaking uh, to a guest in the bookstore uh, from Ireland, and he was saying it is exactly the same in Ireland, although Ireland, Southern Ireland, he's from Southern Ireland, from Galway, um, is supposed to be a Catholic country, but he said the ex people are actually secular or non-religious, uh, largely. So this is what has happened, you see. They think it's fine, uh, it's open season on religion. But there is a large, uh, uh, the greater part of the world, in fact, is religious. So they are going, those people who are making fun, you know, in, in England, I mean, they even made uh, The Life of Brian, which uh, really mocked the uh, uh, character or personality of Prophet Jesus. And in fact, the Ahmadiyya Jamaat protested mm -hmm. that this would inflame religious uh, feelings so this is exactly what has happened i mean this is the cause but they must realize that uh, they cannot offend they can disagree fine if you don't agree with let's say the segregation of sexes in the mosques or at the jalsa salana men and women uh, fine you can but so let's have a rational argument well a rational argument which means you insults are kept out of the equation so all I'm saying is, please keep insults uh, outside of mm. the equation. And therefore, I condemn Salman Rushdie and his book, and Charlie Hebdo, what they did about the, about the um, you call them the cartoons, and the Denmark magazine. So this is not taking uh, a difference of view with Islam. This is just making fun. This is j taking advantage of your editorial positions with these publications. Um, if you think that Islam is not a good religion and uh, that it's, for example, it started the slave trade mm -hmm. from the 1500s to the 19th, which was started by the Western countries, if you think mm. that Islam is uh, such a backward religion as to have started the slave trade, well, let's have a rational argument about it. So we'll point out to you where Western uh, civilization, mm. the history of Western civilization, not only in the past, but even in the 20th century, mm. you know, what happened in Vietnam, in Algeria, in Morocco. This is how these societies were behaving. And I only mention these points because they are very quick to attack Islam. And so Muslims 
you know, the reaction of the Muslims is very frustrating. You know, the burning of the embassy is not allowed, is it, in Islam? No, no. It's forbidden to attack embassies. What, you know, an mm. embassy is sacrosanct because it represents the people. Yeah. And, you know, in fact, most of the people in, in, in Sweden, they didn't agree with this. No. It was not done by a Swedish national. It was no. done by an Iraqi immigrant, right, yeah. who probably had an axe to grind. Yeah. So why are you trying to antagonize the whole of the Swedish nation? Mm. Because if you burn a flag, or if you burn an embassy, which is even worse, uh, you will just antagonize the whole nation. So this is not the reaction. The reaction is what the Ahmadiyya community has done under the guidance of the Caliph, mm -hmm. which is to extol the virtues of the noble character of the Holy Prophet Muhammad this is the correct reaction, isn't it? No, absolutely. And yeah. No, and um, His Holiness has said uh, in one of his sermons, freedom of expression certainly does not mean that sentiments are trifled with, with what we were saying, mm -hmm. or are caused hurt. If yes. this is uh, the freedom that the West is proud of, then this freedom does not lead to advancement; rather, it leads to decline. And uh, as far as the Quran is concerned, I think uh, as far as its understanding of. Uh, freedom of uh, uh, speech is concerned, that on the one hand it, uh, it promotes a dialogue, it promotes anything that uh, uh, progresses uh, understanding a debate, but not insult. We have that yes. verse in the Holy Quran, yes. when we are admonished from deriding another people, mm. perchance mm. they may be better than, Absolutely than you. Correct. So we have that. And uh, also we have to remember that when uh, there are attacks literary attacks on Islam. We've suffered uh, countless uh, um, books that are disagreeing with uh, Islamic values and Islamic teachings, uh, with um, Orientalists that have written, uh, you know, uh, things that we would not agree with. But we've never uh, reacted against those mm. in in uh, in a violent manner, yeah, true. and n neither should that be the case. But at least it's progressed in debate, and that's something that we can tolerate. The other thing uh, that I just want you to ask is, um, what should be the de uh, our reaction then, very briefly? Well, I think uh, the um, under the guidance of Hazrat uh, Khalif Tumasi. Uh, we have received uh, detailed guidance on this point that uh, our uh, protests have to be uh, civil, they have to be peaceful. We must write to the embassies, we must write to the Prime Minister of Sweden or whichever, or, or France in the case of Charlie Hebdo, and we must protest. Uh, but there must not be any violent mm. protests, you know, e even if there are violent protests. Azura said we can uh, participate in peaceful protests, but as soon as they, if they become violent, then you have to withdraw. I just want to bring a, a verse of the Holy Quran in, if I may, before I bring uh, Philip in. It's not the right verse. Just one second. وَلَا تَسْتَوِي الْحَسَنَةُ وَلَا السَّيِّئَةِ إِدْفَعْ بِالَّتِي هِيَ أَحْسَنُ فَإِذَا الَّذِي بَيْنَكَ وَبَيْنَهُ عَدَاوَةٌ كَأَنَّهُ وَلِيٌّ حَمِيمٌ 
translation is, and good and evil are not alike, repel evil with that which is best, and lo, he between whom and thyself was enmity will become as though he were a warm friend. So that's, I suppose, an indication of uh, how we should repel evil. Uh, any thoughts, uh, Philip? Yes. Um, the And th this alludes to the reaction, I think, of the burning of, of, of the scripture. Mm. And I'm reminded that, um, again, looking at the example of the Prophet Muhammad, on whom be peace, he would walk um, in Medina. And this was at a time during his ministry when he was not widely acknowledged as the, the prophet. Um, and a lady would regularly, as he passed by her house, throw the rubbish of the house over him. Mm -hmm. And then one day she didn't. And it had become so habitual that the prophet then asked, inquired after her. And um, in a loving in a loving way, he mm. asked about her her well-being. So this is how we must react in a way, in a very in a very loving way, with but also with debate. And that, as Hazur, His Holiness has mentioned, will lead to progress rather than decline. Okay. Now we we've had instance of the burning of the Quran before. This is a clip that uh, illustrates the kind of reaction that we undertook uh, when that happened in the past. Being suggested in Florida. Uh, there's no anger here. They're just extremely upset. A little earlier on, before the, um, the prayers, there was a small uh, ceremony in which other leaders of other faiths were, were asked to come here. Uh, indeed, some of them come here quite regularly. Uh, and they exchanged scriptures. So the Bible was handed to the Imam. Uh, the Quran was handed over to a Catholic priest. A Jewish leader was here as well who, who sang. It was upset. No anger at all. I heard the pastor uh, interviewed a little earlier. We ran it a little earlier. Uh, from CBS News, he was asked there whether he thought, uh, whether he understood quite quite what he'd unleashed, uh, and he thought seemed to think that it showed that there was some sort of element uh, of violence within Islam. There's nothing like that here at all. There is, as I say, no anger, just extreme upset. And I'm joined now by Hassan uh, Ahmedi. Can you describe to me, if you can, sir, why this is quite? It's a crude question, I know, but why is this quite so upsetting? Only because the sentiments of uh, our beloved Holy Prophet and the Word of God is at stake here. You know, as Muslims, we do not uh, uh, demean the other religious books. In fact, the Holy Quran, the Holy Bible that was given to me when I was at school, I've still got a copy of that, and, and it's up there with, my, with the Quran. So any scripture of God, anyone's sentiments are, are at risk here. And if you hurt them, people do get upset, but it's how we react after that. And I think we are showing the way by outreaching to all communities. And you heard it yourself today. All the religious leaders were upset. They weren't angry, they were, they were upset because it hurts their, their feelings as well. Right, so that's a clip. Uh, it was uh, recording the uh, uh, way that uh, the Muslim community uh, reacted to one of the incidents where the Quran was burnt. It was Asan Ahmadi, who was a spokesman uh, there. Um, uh, do you think the incidents of ju such burnings and other provocations are coordinated attacks to inflame Muslim sentiment? Well, <coughs> that's a very interesting question um, because, you know, the other religions are not attacked in the West, for example, the Hindu religion or their books. 
And it is always, you know, whether it was in France, Charlie Hebdo, or the Danish publications, they seem to have an agenda against Islam. My own view is that because, uh, I can't prove it unfortunately, is that uh, uh, Islam represents a real threat to the West. Uh, now a, a, a perceived threat? Uh, real oh, threat. oh, I see. Uh, uh, yes, I see what you're saying. Mm. Not, I mean, not a, a military threat or mm -hmm. something like this. Uh, what I meant is uh, a, th a threat, a rational threat. I mean, uh, Islam is the alternative. Mm -hmm. Not Hinduism or Buddhism or, or communism. Or com communism? Mm. Well, communism is not a religion. You see, it's not divine. Okay. So, um, okay, that was perceived as. I'm a bit, I'm bit okay. surprised you have brought it into the bracket, okay. but never mind. So, you know, I mean, to Christianity and to Christian values and to Western values, I think Islam is seen as a threat, as you say, Walisa, uh, as perceived mm. as a threat. It is not a threat. Mm. It only brings in goodness. And uh, I can prove that very easily. You see, for example, the NHS is in a crisis. Now, if people drank less, smoked less, you know, alcohol, and didn't take any drugs, and uh, uh, ate less, and this is what the Quran says, that everything should be done mm. in moderation, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so obesity and alcohol abuse, drinking abuse, smoking abuse, all these things are discouraged by Islam, especially alcohol, everyone knows. So this would bring immediate benefit. You know, I asked at the um, conference in Medway, uh, the NHS, you know, consultation they invite our mosque mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. I said, how many of your patients do you think, or how much resources is being put to the chief executive of the NHS, uh, uh, not of Medway Hospital, uh, to alcohol uh, abuse? And he said it would be about 20, 25 percent. Or did he say about 20, 22 percent, something like this. Mm -hmm. So Islam can bring immediate benefit to the West and also it discourages gambling, which is a total, you see the amount of uh, money being wasted in the West is immense. Alcohol abuse, drug abuse, gambling, if you just take these, uh, so uh, Islam can help the, benef uh, the West a lot mm -hmm. and immediately. Uh, so so in a nutshell, are you saying that it is because it's seen as a perceived threat, there yes. may be some coordination behind it? Mm. It's always Islam. You see, they don't make mm -hmm. uh, they don't make fun of the Vedas. Mm -hmm. Whereas the if you look at the contents of the Vedas, it's uh, far more objectionable. Okay, mm. well we have to leave it there. I'm afraid, uh, Mr. Zaramdi. Thank you very much for that, and Philip Gent, because we have to move to uh, the main uh, uh, Jalsa uh, arena where uh, the speech. Respected chairman, dear brothers and sisters. Honored guests, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah ta'ala wa barakatuhu. The topic of my speech is challenges faced by children in schools and their solutions. Before I speak about these specific challenges and their solutions, I'd like to share an incident that highlights the tremendous importance and relevance of this topic to all of us. During one Friday sermon, beloved Hazrat Tutmasi al-Khamis 
may Allah ever support him with his might, mighty support, said, a very worrisome example of negative thinking came before my eyes recently when a person wrote me a letter saying that the world is chasing after money these days. Rampant immorality prevails. Many new kinds of intoxicants and their usage is common everywhere. And society in general is spiraling downward rapidly in error and misguidance. Owing to this, he says, I'll certainly marry one day, but I think it's best not to have any children. Brothers and sisters, is that the solution? Is that how we are to resolve the issues at hand? Tell every married couple who simply don't have any children and you'll not have to worry at all on how to raise them, educate them, or have any fears of them living in a world of such doom and gloom. Not at all. Beloved Hazur says, this is an exceedingly pessimistic view. It is akin to accepting defeat from shaitan, Satan, and taking shaitan as the final authority while acting as though Allah Almighty has no ability to bless our prayers, bless our efforts to train our children. Na'udhu billah min dalik, we seek refuge from such thought. And Allah has no power to save us and our children from the onslaughts of Satan, regardless of how much effort we exert and how many prayers we offer. This way of thinking is very dangerous and highly pessimistic, and a believer in the Prophet cannot and must not think this way. By Allah's grace and mercy, we are truly blessed to be part of those fortunate souls who have recognized and accepted Imam al-Mahdi, the Prophet Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad Qadiyani the person sent by Allah Almighty in this age to defeat Satan and establish the kingdom of God on earth. Thus the Prophet said, it should be noted that the Dajjal, which means the one who misleads, in reality refers to the one who is the embodiment of Satan. It was written in the earlier scriptures regarding the latter days that many a battle would ensue with Satan during that period. But Satan would eventually be defeated. Though Satan was subdued during the time of every prophet, it was only transitory. It was really destined for the Messiah to truly subdue it. Thus Allah Almighty says, the victory of such a magnitude in the Quran I will keep your true followers dominant over others till the day of judgment. Therefore, Satan is battling with full force in these latter days. But the final victory will be ours, inshallah. Let us now see how the Prophet showed us how to defeat satanic forces and deal with the challenges we face regarding education 
of our children. While discussing the history and necessity of establishing Talim al-Quran school in Qaryan, Hadrat Mirza Bishiruddin Mahfoud Ahmed, a son of Prophet and our beloved second Khalifa, Allah be pleased with him, described the conditions of the schools during the time of the Promised Messiah. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> He says, <clears throat> here in Qadian, the middle school belonged to the Arya sect of the Hindus. In the early days when our boys started enrolling in this school, the Arya teachers began lecturing them that they shouldn't eat meat. As we know, Hindus do not eat meat. They'd say, eating meat is morally wrong. Then they'd raise all kinds of objections that was direct attacks on Islam. The boys would then come back from school and tell their families about these objections. Azur then says, there was a primary school here in Qadian as well. And most teachers were also Aryas who used to teach these same ideas. On the first day that I went to school in that public primary school and my lunch arrived in the afternoon, I went outside and sat under a nearby tree to eat. I vividly recall that liver meat, kaleji, was prepared at home and sent for my lunch that day. Mian Umradin Saab also studied in the same school those days, but in an upper class and I was in the first class. I sat down to eat and he came by, peered over and started saying, Huh? What? You eat meat? Instead of saying meat, he used the word mas, which was the Hindu word for meat. Since it was the first time that I heard that word, Huzur says, I didn't know that mas meant meat. Therefore, I said, this isn't mas, it's liver meat. He replied, mas means liver, means meat. So I heard the word mas for the first time articulated in a manner clearly indicating, implying that consuming meat is wrong and one should avoid it. The reason for this aversion to meat was obvious. Even though he was a Muslim, the Arya's teachers had taught that eating animal flesh was unethical and a major offense. Thus the Arya teachers kept expressing these criticisms and the students would return home and inform their families. When this matter finally came to the notice of the Prophet he directed, In whatever way possible, the Jamaat must offer the required sacrifice and open its own primary school. In the Bible, Hazrat Isa Jesus is poor to have said, do not cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. Matthew chapter seven, verse six. In one sense of this verse, children are the real pearls of a family and the crown jewels of a nation. They're priceless treasures that must be protected 
and preserved at all costs. A promise considered his dear son and the Muslim children of Qadian to be such priceless pearls and that must no longer be placed in the care of those biased antagonistic teachers who did not value them and who sought to eliminate all elements of their Muslim identity and traditions. Back then, Muslims were a minority. It's in India, less than 25% of the population. And there was a strong undercurrent of anti-Islamic sentiments, a cultural clash, and social pressure on Muslims to adopt the norms and ways of the Hindu majority, as we can see from the school incident. Thus, to educate the youth and save them from concerted attempts to poison their minds against their faith and traditions, to provide arguments to refute the allegations against Islam, and to train them to become not only model citizens, but also true servants of Islam, Hazrat Masimah of the Prophet inaugurated the first Ahmadiyya school on January 3rd, 1898, and named it Talim Islam College, a school. Both boys and girls were enrolled in a school, which dispels the notion that Islam prohibits girls and women from seeking education. Islam stresses that education is equally and vitally important for both men and women. The Holy Prophet Muhammad said, It is a duty of every single Muslim, whether man or woman, to acquire knowledge. Then and now, this is the best solution when children face similar circumstances and challenges in school. This is a formula to open your own school that other faith groups have employed throughout the ages, including here in England and other Western nations where Christian schools and colleges flourish. These days, Western nations have similar dynamics of anti-Islamic undercurrents, a cultural class, and pressures, subtle or blatant, to conform to secularism and Western values, even when they blatantly oppose the values and principles of Islam. For instance, a Muslim girl in France wrote about her ordeal when she was 14 years old, and a government edict advised schools to prohibit the wearing of, quote, ostentatious religious symbols, unquote. In other words, a ban on hijab. She says, I was a model student until the point I refused to remove my headscarf. Full attendance, never late, and yet I found myself in front of a disciplinary board. I remember that they, used, they tried to intimidate us. They told us we weren't in Iran. I had no idea even what that meant. They accused us of being part of the FIS, Algeria's banned Islamic Salvation Front. But I'm Moroccan. We were forced to come to school, but were forbidden from attending lessons. This went on for months. The local Muslim group and the mosque told me to remove my headscarf, but I refused. To me, it felt like asking me to strip. I felt violated by the demand to undress. Now, hearing that narration of this poor girl 
perhaps the most distressing and disappointing aspect of this whole story is that local Muslim elders tried to persuade this girl to remove her hijab. They were like that poor Umar al-Din saying, eh, maskande, you eating meat? In this case, what? You're wearing hijab in the West? Obviously, this case was quite extreme, but the social pressure is common. That's why a young 10-year-old Amity girl recently told Huzur during a molokat that she had anxiety about the prospect of wearing a hijab when she starts secondary school, fearing the reaction of her peers. But listen how Huzur reassured her. He said, quote, if Islam is true, then God Almighty has written in the Holy Quran that when girls reach the age of adolescence, they should observe the hijab. So if a person believes in the truth of Islam, they ought to act upon the commandments of Allah the Almighty. And when we follow the commands, there's no need to fear anyone. Everything we do is for the pleasure of Allah the Almighty. Indeed, if you wish to make Allah the Almighty happy, then there is no need to fear other people. Develop firm faith within yourself. Do not be shy. Do not be fearful. We are truthful. Our religion is true. And we are resolute in our faith. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah, we have our beloved Huzur to guide us through these perplexing situations and challenging trials. In contrast to that poor Moroccan girl who was being told by Muslim leaders to take off their headscarf. Dress codes, as we know, are essential teachings of Islam to promote modesty and protect girls from unwanted looks and unsolicited advances. These are not old-fashioned ideas and oppressive measures that limit the freedom of women and girls. These are necessary in today's world and in these so-called civilized advanced societies, such as this one, where girls are constantly, verbally, emotionally, physically victimized by their male peers in school, right here in these nations. The degree is mind-boggling. The rape culture in UK schools was shockingly exposed recently when a female student began a website, hashtag, everyone's invited, to record personal testimonies of sexual harassment of girls. The website was inundated with harrowing testimonies that exploded overnight to more than 10,000 in one day. Mind-boggling. During the recent pandemic, we adopted many safety protocols, wearing a mask, using hand sanitizer, getting vaccinations, etc., to avoid contracting the coronavirus and suffering ill health. 14 centuries ago, Islam prescribed protocols to keep women safe from the virus of sexual abuse. A separate girls' school is not a form of segregation. It's vital protection to eliminate the virus of sexual abuse occurring in these days 
in these nations, in these schools. Studies also show that girls fare much better in all girls schools. According to Lauren Briggs, the chief executive of the Alliance of Girls Schools, Australia, she says, quote, there's not the social pressure to be quiet in class. The conversation becomes about learning, not being liked. They're not putting on makeup to go to school. Their school time is about learning and having confidence. It ends in a much better outcome. Unfortunately, recent protests reveal that some Muslim countries fail to give women and girls the right and equal access to education, which Islam granted centuries ago. Western media condemns them for that while downplaying the sexual abuse that runs rampant in some Western nations. A drastic and immediate change is needed in both cases. The true traditions and teachings of Islam provide the solution. Nowadays, the seed that may sprout into abuse is being planted in very young, fertile minds. Huzur therefore recently warned, quote, in Western countries, there is a growing trend and movement to teach small children in schools or elsewhere things that are entirely beyond, things that are entirely beyond their comprehension and not at all age appropriate. They are trying to sexualize innocent young children by teaching them things that are, they are not ready to process. Throughout the history, Children have not been exposed to such things at such a young age. So why now is there a need to force very small children into discussions about sex? All it serves to do is destroy the innocence of youth and is bound to have long-term harmful effects. Then recently in Canada, a teacher went viral for berating Muslim students who purposely stayed away during a Pride Month event at school. This is what she said. If you want to be respected for who you are, if you don't want to suffer prejudice for your religion, your color, your skin, or whatever, then you better give it. It meaning respect. Back to people who are different than you. The Holy Prophet Muhammad had clearly stated that one characteristic of the Dajjal in the latter days would be, quote, women would look like men and men would look like women. This was bound to happen. Even the youngest children in primary schools confront the issues of homosexuality and transgender fluidity. What happened in Canada is one of many instances of the enormous pressure in schools from officials and peers to not only respect this way of life, but also to celebrate it. Otherwise, a child may be labeled intolerant, a hater, homophobic, or perhaps even a religious fanatic. Psychologically, children want to fit in so this is one of the most perplexing and emotionally charged issues that they face. We as parents must get past the sensitive and taboo nature of these topics 
and discuss these issues with our children in an age-appropriate manner and provide them with the knowledge to have the confidence and courage to handle these situations. Once responding to a reporter, Hazura explained our view on this issue and said, I follow the teachings of my holy book, which states that homosexuality is not a good practice. In fact, the Bible has spoken even more against homosexuality. Based on my, my teachings, it is impossible for me to like something that is not liked by Allah Almighty. Nevertheless, and this is important, even if I do not agree with this lifestyle, I firmly believe that no homosexual person should ever be mistreated in any way or persecuted. We feel compassion for people who engage in immoral practices and pray that God may guide and save them from his displeasure. Look at this balanced view that Islam has taken, and we are respectful and compassionate toward others, but we do not support and celebrate anything which we consider immoral. Every individual in every society have the same red lines. We let God define our red line, and we don't cross it. These challenges clearly indicate, once again, why our schools are necessary. The promise that I was ready to make a school because they were telling Muslim boys to do not eat meat. Imagine if you could see schools today. They're telling your kids, your girls, to take off their headscarves, telling your boys to strip naked and shower in a full room with other naked boys, telling your children it's okay to use intoxicants and drugs telling them to celebrate lifestyles that are moral. If he were alive and seeing this, would he not say, Zestara biho sake. karke. Primary school, secondary school, college, university, kaim karke, kaim karde. This is what is the situation now. Whatever it takes, we must establish primary school, middle school, high school, universities, to save our children from this wave, a wave, a wave of immorality that's polluting the environment in which they try to go just to learn education. But of course, the solution is not always so simple and easy. Thus in 1976, when Hazrat III first came to the USA on a tour, he said this about schools. At present, it is very difficult to start Amity schools. It is practically impossible. For a school, you must have a certain number of students, a certain number of qualified teachers, a building, funds to run it, and a desire to learn from a certain place. Under these conditions, we cannot have schools. But because we cannot have schools, we cannot forget our children. We cannot tolerate that our blood goes to and lives under the shadow of Satan. It is unbearable. We should not tolerate even for a single second. So we must devise means to get them properly educated in the teachings of Islam. One proposal he had was where to open vacation schools. When the students have vacations from educational institutions, they can go there 
and be under the supervision of those who are qualified to look after them properly and teach them the basics of Islam. Thus, vacation schools are a good option when members are few and scattered throughout a nation. Recently, Azur has advised that given the rising moral pollution in schools, Amity parents should consider the option of homeschooling their children, especially when young during the formative years. Once they have developed a strong moral foundation and sense of Muslim identity and a sense of right and wrong, then they can be allowed to enroll in public schools. However, Zua warned and cautioned that the homeschooling option requires parents who have the temperament and talent to teach young children. But what are we to do? If there is no Amity school in our neighborhood, if we can't homeschool, we don't have the ability or the talent, we must prepare them as best as possible to face the world and the challenges they will confront. Who's best to do this? It is mothers. Beloved, has said once, most importantly, about this condition of mothers. He said, quote, if a woman decides that she is going to make the future generation righteous rather than barbaric, then how can Satan capture them? It is only women who can challenge Satan permanently. If women decide that they are going to make the future generation servants of religion, then who will Satan corrupt? The future generation is not influenced by Satan, but by their mothers. But mothers can make the mistake of letting them go so that they become the bait hunted by Satan. You must understand your responsibilities. Thus, women play a critical role in establishing this kingdom of God and keeping these children safe. Addressing the members of Lajana of UK recently, Hazur said, talk to your children every day and tell them those things that will bring them closer to Allah the Almighty and the Holy Prophet Muhammad As I've said many times before, it is essential that Amity Muslim parents develop a genuine friendship and mutual trust with their children from the very beginning. While this is the duty of both parents, it is especially incumbent on Amity Muslim mothers to forge a loving and close bond with their children and to instill religious values within them. You should encourage your children to talk to you freely, openly, because children are curious and it is the duty of a mother to answer questions. Again, when the children return from school, they should find a peaceful and loving environment at home if we look around ourselves, the reason many children go astray is because they are just deprived of their parents' love. They need attention, the like of which is not given by their parents. The parents are occupied in the rat race of accumulating wealth and is satisfying their own interests. For Amity Muslim women, the best role model of love of children raising children in this age is the model of Hazrat Amajan Arthalanho and the revered spouse 
of the promised Messiah as the fourth once addressed the Lord and said if you wish to save your children from evil then follow the pure example of Hazrat Amajan this prescription is without fail and whoever follows it will be successful regarding that pure and noble example Hazrat Mirza Zafar Ahmad Sahib writes Hazrat Mirza Nasser Ahmad was my cousin he lived with Hazrat Amajan and he was the delight of her heart not that she didn't love me whenever I visited Hazrat Amajan I found her teaching and educating him with great affection. Since Masjid Mubarak was attached to her residence, Muslim Maud, the second caliph, would pass through it each time he went or returned from the prayer. As soon as Hazrat Amajan heard his footsteps, she would say, Children, now get up and please go and offer your prayers in the Masjid. At this, we would briskly perform our ablutions and hasten to join the Salat by Jamaat congregation, thus instilling the importance of a relation with God and a rhythm of going into his house for prayer. Sahib Mirza Muzaffar Ahmad Sahib, Imam Ahmad as we call our former Amir of USA, used to always say, I've heard this, I can't tell you how many times. The best school in the world is the mini University of Islam in every single household. Listen to his recollections of attending the classes in the greatest mini university of this time, the home of Umul Mumineen, the mother of the faithful, Hazrat Amajan Artalanha. He said, before I joined the cult at Lahore, my father had also sent me to Hazrat Amajan. And thus, Huzur and I lived together and were very happy indeed. I noted that Huzur would always ask permission to leave whenever he wanted to go out. The words which Hazrat Amajan used to grant permission still resound in my ears. The words were indeed a prayer. She would say, Gee, Jayabete. Yes, you may go, my dear. May Allah be your helper and protector. She would pronounce these words with deep feelings of love and longing. Those days were indeed full of love and bliss. It was in this kind of clean and chaste environment that Hazrat Mirza Nasser Ahmad was brought up under the benign and personal supervision of Hazrat Amajan. See how powerful and impactful is the prayer of a loving mother. Simple words such as May God be your helper and protector. When said from the depth of one's heart, leave a lasting impression on children and draw divine grace to protect them. These words should flow from the lips and the hearts of every Amity mother whenever sending her child off to school or out into the world. It is with this we as followers of Hazrat Masih must recognize our challenges and do our best to protect our children in this day and age, whether we are able to build a school or not, to build those universities in our home 
we can teach our children all the ways to love God, to serve God, to be righteous servants of Khilafat and humanity, and by thereby securing their future and leaving us with no worry and no grief that we're bringing children of the world to be ensnared by Satan, they will be the ones to defeat Satan and help us all to bring the kingdom of God in this world, not just for our Jamaat, not just for our nation, but for the entire world, inshallah ta'ala, may now Allah Almighty enable all of us to do so. Peace people morning, good morning. Welcome back to the Weekend World Show with myself, Waleed Ahmed, and uh, I'm joined by Dr. Shakeed Ahmed, uh, a professional psychiatrist, uh, and hopefully we'll be joined also by Imam Asif Nir all the way from New Zealand for this part of the program, which we'll be discussing the uh, subject of search for God. Uh, man, in the broader scheme of things, is master of all he surveys. Yet when uh, we look into history, we find that there is a search, we believe, among all nations for a creator. Uh, now, in times where atheism and agnosticism is on the rise, we intend to explore what it is about man that compels him to search for God. Is it necessary? Is it necessary for us to know he exists? And if he does exist, then is it necessary for us to seek him? And is it necessary for us to then form a relationship with him? So these are other questions uh, what we are going to be exploring this part of the program. But then let's start us off with this uh, verse of the Holy Quran, which perhaps will stimulate our discussion a little more. إن في خلق السماوات والأرض واختلاف الليل والنهار لآيات لأولي الألباب. The translation of this verse reads: In the creation of the heavens and the earth and the alternation of the day and night, there are signs for people of reason. So this is from chapter three, verse hundred and ninety-one. Uh, Dr. Shiel, uh, from a psychological, psychiatric point of view, uh, is there something innate in man that uh, drives him, compels him or her to search for God? Um, thank you for that question. I think it's a very profound question that you're posing uh, for discussion. Let's look at the world population as we see today. We are around 7.5 billion people on Earth. And out of those, the majority, a big majority, in fact, believe in some kind of deity. So looking at the population of Christians, which is about two and a half billion, and then two billion Muslims on earth, one billion each of Hindus and Buddhists, and then other religions of smaller frequency. Altogether, it amounts to 6.5 to 7 billion out of 7.5 billion. Mm, majority, so a big majority. A big majority. Mm somehow have accepted the idea that there is a higher being, a higher authority that is worthy of our attention, our worship. Mm. And they do it in their own way, whatever they believe is right. So this in itself is a strong evidence that the human psyche subscribes to the existence of God a lot more than the non-existence. <laughs> and in fact, if there was to be a discussion about the subject of the existence of God, then the onus of proof falls, therefore, more on the atheist to prove the non-existence mm. because their view is at odds with the majority. Mm. Mm. Now, let's also look at it from a slightly different angle. 
from our individual psychological experience angle. Our conscience makes us experience any act of goodness and righteousness as a pleasant act. So you and I, or for that matter, a member of any other faith or a person with no faith, mm. all of us would experience somebody being kind to us as a good experience, as a positive experience. On the other hand, if somebody was uh, a victim of some kind of rough reaction, like a road rage or a crime or physical or verbal aggression, we would find it as unpleasant. Now, isn't it true that wherever religion is discussed or wherever God is discussed, we are taught that kindness and goodness is godly and being abusive or aggressive is satanic or wrong and opposite to what God teaches us. So the point I'm making is that our psyche experiences godliness as correct and pleasant and something that goes against these ways of moral behavior as unpleasant and unwelcomed. This mm. is yet another evidence that psychologically we are tuned into what God is teaching us anyway. And then I would also want to think of yet another point that throughout history we've had people who have taught their fellow human beings uh, higher levels of morality and they've taught that by being moral is the only way to being spiritual mm -hmm. and better human beings. Now of course people of religion will call these special people, these inviters as prophets of God, messengers of God. That's what they say they are. They say that they receive this guidance from a higher being and pass it on to the fellow human beings. And they've lived in different times in history and without any communication with each other because modern communications did not exist at the time when most of these prophets lived. Mm -hmm. But they came with the same common message appealing to the psyche of all human beings throughout history. Mm -hmm. So I think there is a lot of evidence that our psyche seeks a higher being and seeks goodness and better standard of living and better moral structure through that relationship with that higher being. Mm -hmm. Um, tell me, you know, the Holy Quran alludes to the fact that uh, the objective of the creation of man is to worship God. Uh, from a psychiatric standpoint, do you think there is something uh, inst inst instinctive in man, something that is wired into his psyche to actually be drawn to that particular uh, act through that particular act of worship? I believe so. I think you're very right that it is uh, programmed into our psyche uh -huh. to seek God and once we find in whatever shape or form that we try to relate to him. And that's what we called as worshipping God. But let me extend my answer to, at, uh, to the development of life on earth. So when life has evolved from very microscopic forms to more complex species, and ultimately the humans, which is, as we know, the pinnacle of the evolution of life on Earth, it has not basic, it's primarily it has not been a journey of biological development, of physiological development. 
primarily and fundamentally, and this is what Holy Quran teaches us, it has been a journey of development of consciousness, of awareness of our surroundings, being able to relate to them and understand them, and thus try to ponder on the source of all existence and the source of all creation, which is God. <laughs> and this capability has been pinnacled through the process of evolution in this modern uh, our species. Right. Now, when we see ourselves at this stage, then we are also we, we also find ourselves with a choice. Uh-huh. whether we do want to understand nature and try to live our lives in harmony with nature and therefore have the capability to relate to God and thus improve in our worship with God or do it the other way, get focused on more material pursuits of life and vain, shallow, short-term gratification ways of living. It is our choice and it mm. is our decision. Mm. but. The more we do the former, which is related to God through our worship, thus carries on the original purpose of why we were created, which is that the process of evolution carries on from a biological state to a spiritual state. Once the spiritual state of the human being has been born through a soul being planted into every newborn, then begins the spiritual evolution process. And that journey is not ending according to the Holy Quran. That's an ever going, ever, uh, how do you call it? Ever progressing. Cap- ever progressing, mm-hmm. that's a good word, mm-hmm. journey. So in this life, we do it through self-reformation mm-hmm. and try to live a righteous life. Mm-hmm. But in afterlife as well, our bodies cease to exist, but our souls carry on mm-hmm. and this journey continues. So the progress towards God that started four and a half billion years ago with that microscopic animal carries on even in the afterlife. Right. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Um, <coughs> I'm very grateful to uh, our technical team, Akib Ahmed and Man, because we are trying to establish contact uh, with the other side of the world, uh, New Zealand. Uh, I understand that uh, Imam Asif Munir is with us. Uh, thank you for joining us, Asif. Welcome, Salam. How are you? Oh, very well, thank you. What's the weather like there? We're suffering rain at the moment. Oh, it's yeah? extreme. Hmm? Yes, it's extremely cold. Oh, it's right. um, 10 feet here because we have the winter season right now. Ah, okay. Uh, we, we have a bit of that now here as well. Um, uh, unexpectedly, I must say. Um, now, um, I hope that you were able to catch on the discussion that we're having with Dr. Shaquille. Um, now, he was mentioning that... Um, um, the majority of the population in this world uh, are those that believe in God. Uh, we tend to be very familiar with the Abrahamic faiths which uh, dominate the, the world, uh, the large uh, spans of the world. But uh, you're in New Zealand. Uh, is there any evidence uh, of uh, the search for God uh, among the original inhabitants of uh, of New Zealand, the Maoris? Um, yes, so the Maoris actually have a belief in spirituality and in many religious um, traditions actually. Mm-hmm. And um, traditionally, the Maori spirituality centers are all around um, nature and you know ancestral beliefs and stuff. And just like, just like the Greek methodology, the, the Greek philosophies, similarly, the Maori 
um, philosophy or philosophy of spirituality is really similar and they have this concept of atua and uh-huh. atua means deities means gods uh-huh. and just like the greeks believe in gods of nature for example the gods of sun gods of moon gods of mountain similarly the maoris also believe in um something really similar which is for example they they name the god of forest tane mahuta or the god of the seas Tangaroa and mm-hmm. it's 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 really it's really you know similar to the greek methodology but they do ha- they do believe in spirituality and it's mostly ancestor based so whatever whatever their ancestors passed on to the progeny or through generations that's what they learned essentially mm-hmm. and it's all oral transmission so it's nothing's nothing's written down it's all based on oral transmissions and you know just like god almighty states in the holy quran that he sent a messenger in every single country in his world mm-hmm. likewise you know god almighty he probably did send some prophets there right. and there's a there's a there is a mari emdi a gentleman he lives four hours away from me and he's a mari he converted um around 10 years ago and he was telling me some stories about a gentleman who came around to 3000 years ago and his name was Nagato Nagato Ruirangi mm-hmm. and I know it's it's a really funny name but Maoris they 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 have these sorts of names but mm-hmm. he told me that this gentleman you know he used to live really humbly up to the mountain he used to fast for 40 days he used to live in seclusion and we Muslims we know these are prophetic traditions these are mm. prophetic traits that every single prophet holds because um the holy prophet muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam used to do this jesus used to do this moses used to do this even buddha used to do this so from this you can tell that you know they were some sort of spiritual people here in new zealand mm-hmm. which we don't have the record of because of uh, right so that, know, that's very interesting old, uh, imam uh, the oral transitions yeah. they have yeah very very interesting because uh, uh, <coughs> uh, what uh, dr shigir was mentioning earlier is that uh, there is uh, this uh, tendency you already mentioned that uh, there is this belief in god or gods and, uh, and dr shakir was mentioning the um, the existence of prophets people uh, who are in in communion and are able to deliver messages from from god so that's something that uh, is also found according to you um, in 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 new zealand among the maoris as well uh, what i wanted to know from you is that you're a, you're a missionary you're one who is uh, trying to draw people towards god but there is uh, um, seems to be at least a growing trend towards atheism why why do you think that is yes you're you're absolutely right because the the, the city that i reside in is called hamilton mm-hmm. which is in the waikato region and a couple of months ago actually i was reading an article about my city and it said that atheism has become a trend in Hamilton New Zealand so it's not just Europe that's been affected New Zealand's been affected very deeply as well and i think the main reason of this is you know they there are a lot of misconceptions about religion and whenever i go preaching out on the New Zealand street um you know people ask me many many different questions about religion such as you know religion causes warfare religion um divides people 
and also due due to the fanatics, there are you know there, there are many fanatics in every single religion. You know, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, and people people are put put off from this. And there's also a misconception that religion teaches irrational things. And there's a great example of this in the time of the Renaissance, in the Enlightenment period, when Galileo mm. he taught the people that the Earth, you know, orbits the Sun. Mm. Which is totally against the biblical teaching, and when the priests, when the pastors, the senior people of Christianity at that time, when they heard about this, they, they, they said no, that's blasphemy, and they literally tortured Galileo, and we all know that atheism occurred during the Enlightenment period, during the time of the Renaissance, because of all these irrational philosophies that people came up with. Mm. Mm. Um, you know, in your work, do you find that there's a greater degree of acceptance uh, um, among the Maori as opposed to the uh, to the uh, new settlers? Yes, yes. Personally, whenever I preach in the streets, majority of the Maori members they stop and they ask me questions very sincerely, mm-hmm. and they want to know about Islam because they have this, you know, you can say rancor or this hatred towards Christianity because of the British Empire because the Murray, they are a really proud culture, a proud nation and whenever they hear about the British colonization, how the British came here, preached Christianity, forced Christianity upon them you know, they have this rancor, they have this deep hatred against Christianity mm. so whenever I preach about Islam, they just say, oh, there's something different and that's when they come here and they listen to um, the Islamic teachings and, you know, by the grace of God, I've got many Murray contacts who I still speak to as well to this day, and they have this interest in Islam. And just just like I mentioned early on, people are accepting Islam. We have we have a Maori gentleman who accepted Islam immediate a couple of years ago as well because it's so our belief is so rational and according to science and psycho, um, psychology. No, thank you. Uh, I mean, uh, we are living in times when uh, the existence of God is being challenged. I just want to play a couple of clips before I move on to Dr. Shaquille to find out the psychological impact of denying the existence of God. But these are clips from His Holy <coughs> of His Holiness Azam Mirza Ahmed on the existence of God. So let's see, uh, see what this have to offer. Existence of Allah can be proved to the non-believers by looking at the creation of the world, at everything. It's amazing how scientists close their eyes to these things. In my book, Revelation, I have revealed many things which uh, are positive proof that evolution is not blind evolution. Everything created has a purpose, and has a mechanism which cannot come into being automatically through any evolution. First of all, there was a question of genes. And the scientists know that there are genes and genes and they cannot give any evidence of their evolution. Where did they come into, where did they start from? how from dead earth suddenly the genes sprang up. And among other things, the most surprising thing is uh, chlorophyll. Although the scientists 
try to give evolutionary history of uh, other materials necessary for the development and maintenance of life, they can't give a single explanation as to how chlorophyll was evolved. There is no history of evolution of chlorophyll at all. And without chlorophyll, life could not exist. The green grass which the cows and other milking animals eat, it has chlorophyll. And it is only by the virtue of that chlorophyll that everything is converted into other chemicals. The entire phenomenon of getting milk and fat from out of grass and bones and brain and all the organs of the human body, they all are due to the presence of chlorophyll, without which these bodies could not exist. Uh, it is not created, so it must have some attributes which are not created. Created attributes are not the attributes of the Creator. There is a divide between the two. As the same, when the Creator could not, could, must have also been created. So logically, we, if we begin with the concept of a Creator, He must be different from whatever He created. So our arguments are based on our experience of the creation. The nature of creation we do not know. So according to the Quran, the nature of the creator is such that he visualizes a thing and it is, it begins to be and is finally done. And that energy is uh, balanced in a manner that nothing is lost. For instance, matter and antimatter. If you bring them together, the result is zero. So, this is a vision of God, to create something out of nothing, without losing his energy at all, in the least. He realizes the thing into separate areas out of non-existence. And both are created in their own zone while no extra energy is required for their creation because when they join together, they drop to zero. So similar arguments, rational arguments can be given in favor of the Quran, I mean in favor of God as believed in religions. But uh, there are many areas of further discussion. So that, uh, there were two clips there um, proving, I suppose, or illustrating why we should believe in God from two different vantage points. Um, Dr. Shikil, uh, we, we are in times when uh, the existence of God is being questioned, people are moving away from God. What's the psychological impact of that? We know what the religious impact is. What's the psychological impact of ignoring the existence of God and man? Right. 
Let me first say that this is not the only time when people have tried to move away from God. Mm. So coming towards God and moving away from God, there have been cycles during history, the, the human history and uh, the history of our civilization. So for the last 10, 12,000 years when the modern civilization is known to have existed, there have been um, centuries where there were trends towards God. Uh, that would be advented by the coming of a new prophet mm -hmm. of God and therefore they were able to help people understand the existence of God, develop more just and fair societies and bring more peace and progress to the world. This is a historical fact and then as the time passes uh, the original teachings of that prophet get distorted or get forgotten people start drifting away from God. So the primary reason why we drift away from God is that we drift away from the original teachings brought by the prophets of God. Now, what are the consequences? There is a self-determination theory of human psychology. What it tells us is that our mind needs some direction, some goals to work towards. If we pro provide some constructive goals to it, we works we begin to work towards it and achieve higher uh, levels and be successful in our positive ambitions if we do not offer our mind constructive goals then it picks up goals for itself by default and then tends to work towards those goals now this can be easily understood in a day-to-day -day example of an athlete or a student who have high ambitions of winning an Olympic gold medal or doing very well in their studies in the university. If they have a target, if they work towards it, apply their energy towards it, they're likely to achieve it, more likely, much more. In contrast to another student or athlete who is not disciplined, doesn't do these things and does not apply to the higher goals, is less likely to be successful. So. If our mind is not filled with God, our behavior is going to be followed by some of the other goals that we hear all around us these days in a material society. For example, the, you, you would have come across this quote that, oh, we should live the life to a full. Mm. After all, we only live once. Mm. Now, what does this basically mean? Come to think about it. Living life to full, the person is trying to suggest that go for the best holidays, go for the best pleasures, and pleasure-seeking and making success um, in a material way is what they want. Of its social consequences on the society, on the family of that individual, or even the psyche and the uh, peace at heart of that individual. Some people say, I want to be successful, but they basically mean more bigger cars, bigger houses, fancier clothes, designer clothes, rather than how, what will benefit the earth. Mm, mm. So I think that it is easy that if we let our mental satans of greed, of pleasure seeking, short term gratification flow and not fill our mind and psyche with God, then we're going to be driven by these goals. Mm. Then we are alone and very competitive against each other and don't find that peace at heart. Mm. So this is, the, this is the difficulty that we mm. face, or this is the choice we make. Look at the traffic. Some people say we don't need a code, we'll work out our goals ourselves. But can we imagine sensible traffic on the motorways and through red lights without a traffic code or principles? We're very difficult. Mm -hmm. So there'll be greater unease, you think, uh, within the public 
if they do not uh, are not drawn towards God, or uh, do not recognize God. Uh, absolutely. Okay. I mean, it not just will be, there mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. To be honest, the biggest wars that we've seen in the world, the two world wars, mm-hmm. were a result of greed and politics, self-driven politics, mm-hmm. not because of religion. Right. Uh, and uh, the lack of peace at an individual level, lack of the increase of crime, mm. the increase of material-driven society, we see is because we are not listening to the guidance or the code given to us by mm. God. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, thanks very much. I think we have to leave it there. Um, Imam Asif, uh, are you still with us? Yes, I am. Okay, uh, last word to you. Uh, we've got about 30 seconds. What, uh, what's the solution? How do we bring people back to God? Well, the solution is just like um, Dr. Sub just said, people have become so materialistic that mm. they have totally forgotten their purpose in this life. Yeah. People think the purpose of the life is happiness. Okay, oh, so that's not just how do we bring them back? How do we bring them yeah. back? We've only got 20 seconds now. How do we bring them back? Because this is part of, your, part of your question. profession. I, I Sorry? It's, it's such it's, it's such a the the answer is so it's so vast uh-huh. but I think people need to just understand the purpose of this life they need to right. just like Allah Allah keeps on Allah, God Almighty keeps on asking us in the Holy Quran uh-huh. why don't you ponder why don't you think yes. God wants us to think okay. God wants us to ask these big questions about the purpose of our life no thanks very much uh, Asim uh, Munir thank you very much for for joining us all the way from New Zealand. Thank you for your contribution. Dr. Uh, Dr. Shakil Al is always very informative uh, contribution from you. Thank you very much. Thank you to all those who have uh, contributed to the production of this particular show. Uh, and uh, we will be joining uh, our listeners again next week from our studio in Bethlehem. So until then, Salaam Alaikum for myself and Asama Hamdi who will be returning. Salaam Alaikum.